This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House <laughs> and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. The legislature is back in town in the state capitol for the first time in over a month, so things started to heat up a little bit this week. Item number one, Governor Gretchen Whitmer and the Republican legislative leaders are still in a standoff over the 2020 fiscal year budget, which begins October 1st. That is the fiscal year start. They've got just over a month to get the job done. And both sides are pointing fingers at each other, claiming they're not negotiating in good faith. They're uncooperative. Uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer claims the Republicans have never given her a concrete counterproposal to her mandate at the beginning of the year to raise the state gasoline tax 45 cents per gallon, which has been pretty much dead on arrival in the legislature since she announced it. And this week, one thing that did happen is that the House Democratic leader, Christine Gregg, a Democrat of Farmington Hills, essentially agreed with what the Republicans have been saying all along, and that is it was an extreme proposal by the governor, and it's, in essence, going nowhere. So, Gretchen Whitmer doesn't even seem to have cooperation from Democrats in the House and Senate whose support she would absolutely have to have if she has any hope of getting a gas tax increase of that magnitude, and for that matter, maybe any gas tax increase at all. Item number two, Augustine Arbaloo, the former executive director of the Civil Rights Commission, was fired this week on a 5-2 vote by the Civil Rights Commission because of inappropriate remarks he made in a private conversation last spring, which, quote, objectified, unquote, women and were insensitive in a number of other areas. Uh, He has been twisting in the wind uh, all this time for three months, particularly since Governor Gretchen Whitmer banned him from her cabinet meetings and said she didn't want any other Department of State government to cooperate with Mr. Arbaloo or the Civil Rights Commission, which made his job untenable. And even though the Civil Rights Commission, which, by the way, appoints or appointed Arbaloo and any director of the Civil Rights Commission, the governor does not directly appoint that person. The Civil Rights Commission had stood behind. Arbaloo, claiming what he'd said was inappropriate. They reprimanded him, but they were going to keep him on the job. But they finally caved in. They collapsed this week, and they fired Arbaloo. So now they've got their sixth interim director or director in the last 12 years in the Civil Rights Commission. Not a good sign of stability and continuity. Item number three, Oakland County Executive Dave Coulter is still on the job. We talked about that a lot in the last couple of weeks and all the hullabaloo in Oakland County about how to replace 
L. Brooks Patterson, who died earlier this month. And in a very controversial move, the chairman of the Board of Commissioners, as I think everybody knows, Dave Woodward, resigned because he thought then the commission would appoint him to be the new county executive. Instead, the Board of Commissioners balked. And so David Woodward unresigned and went back on the board, he claims legally, and the Democrats had an 11-10 edge at that point, and they appointed Ferndale Mayor David Coulter, a former county commissioner, to be the interim or acting county executive until the election for a full four-year term next year. Now, that's being challenged in court by the Republicans, but so far the Republicans have had no success in court. Oakland County Circuit Judge Daniel O'Brien this week said, get in line, Republicans, like everybody else, waiting a court date. There's not going to be any injunction against David Coulter being allowed to become county executive. We're going to have to just decide whether it was proper for Woodward to rescind his resignation or not in due course. When could that be? It could be weeks. It could be months. And meanwhile, David Coulter is on the job. Item number four, one thing the State House of Representatives did this week is they voted 98 to 8 to demand that State Representative Larry Inman, a Republican of Traverse City, resign. Larry Inman, I think, as everybody knows, has been accused of attempted bribery. He has been charged by the federal government, lying to the FBI, and he has disappeared from the state capitol. He's not been involved in any voting for a couple of months, and the legislature came back into session. They introduced a resolution co-sponsored by House Speaker Lee Chatfield, a Republican of Levering, and the aforementioned Christine Gregg, Democrat of Farmington Hills, and they took a vote demanding that Inman resign. And it passed 98 to 8. Now, you might ask, who were the eight? They were all Democrats, interestingly enough. Now, there could be a variety of reasons for that. Uh, Maybe Democrats have a little more respect for what is known as due process because Larry Inman, in fact, has not been convicted of anything at this point. Uh, And he has been under treatment for opioid abuse and his attorney claims he's getting ready to come back and start voting again on the other hand maybe the democrats who voted against demanding that inman resign would just like to see a recall election go forward in traverse city which is underway and if inman is on the ballot He's a dead man walking. He's going to lose, and a Democrat will beat him, and the Democrats will take the seat. And then the margin in the House would be 57 to 53 Republicans over Democrats instead of 58 to 52. So maybe that's in the back of their mind. We do not know. Item number five, third grade reading. Well, now this is really interesting because this is the academic year coming up when a law passed three years ago demanding that third graders in Michigan public schools show reading proficiency by the time they complete third grade, or guess what?
they don't get to go to fourth grade. They have to stay in third grade. And that law goes into effect with this academic year starting right now, late August, September of this year, extending through next May or June. And the reading proficiency scores just came out this week. And guess what? Reading proficiency among third graders in Michigan is terrible. It has been terrible for a number of years. This year, it improved, if you can believe this, by half of 1%, but it still showed, get this, that roughly 55% of third graders cannot read at third grade level. They are not capable of reading proficiency or potential proficiency at this point in their education, over half of Michigan third-grade public school students. A really reprehensible situation, and people are wringing their hands what to do about this. There are some possible go-arounds this law in terms of appeals by parents, or perhaps if a student is a second-language student, uh, they wouldn't have to be held back. They could go to fourth grade. We'll see. We'll be back in just a minute with our first guest on still more new topics. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned and we are privileged to have as our guest, Senator Michael McDonald of the 10th Senate District, which I believe covers Sterling Heights and Macomb Township and a big chunk of Clinton Township in Macomb County. Is that correct? Senator McDonald. Good morning, Bill. Uh, yeah, that's correct. I've got all of Sterling Heights. I've got all of Macomb Township. And then I've got everything north of Metro Parkway in Clinton Township. Wow. Now, you recently you had what you called a tele-town hall. Now, we've heard of town halls. We've seen presidential debates in a town hall setting. What was the tele-town hall like? I mean, how did you set it up? How many people participated? How did it go? Would you want to do it again? Tell us everything. Yeah, te- technology is great, isn't it, Bill? It is. <laughs> it, it was actually it was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I think the cool thing about the teletown hall is you attract so many people to it. It's so accessible for everybody. Uh, I think they said I had 1,200 people on at one point, and uh, I like to do as many as I can, and I like to even go longer if I can. I, I thought it was a blast. So how long was it? How did it last? It was about a half hour. So did you get a lot of call-ins from people with questions? Actually, it was about a half hour. It was actually more like 45 minutes, and I think I like to go an hour if I could. (laughs) Okay. So your next one might be longer than the first, huh? Yeah, I'd I'd like to, you know, because you know what it was? It was our first one, so we were kind of getting used to it. And I noticed I had a lot more questions waiting and uh, I think next time I, I like to go as long as I can, actually, like even maybe a little bit more than an hour. Yeah, I mean, how do you even make 
uh, a satisfactory answer in some cases very complex issues how how can you squeeze in an you know an adequate number of people trying to reach you and give them satisfactory answers in a short time span it's really tough well here's the thing about me too bill i i like to learn about other people you know, and a lot of people are shocked by that at my coffee hours and, and at my town halls that I do is I'll ask a lot of questions about you because it's about you. It, it's really more about you than it is about me. What, what do you do? What do you think? And people are taken aback by that. And I, I genuinely want to learn about people. And to do that, you, you do need a lot of time. And, and, you know, I love asking questions to people. I love asking them about their lives, what they do for a living, you know, what are some, some big issues that they have. I don't think people are used to that. And I, I can get myself caught in conversations for a, re- a real long time just because I'm interested sure. in people. I think you got a great attitude. That's the way to do it. Uh, probably these people are dumbfounded. They figure they're going to get you, and they're going to hear the senator get up and give a speech about himself. And instead, well, you're not, asking all the questions. Me. You know, I represent a group of people. It's about them. It's not about me. You're absolutely right. Uh, in 45 minutes, how many people do you think actually got through to you that you could address? As I recall, I, I mean, it probably we probably went through 10, 15 questions that, that actually we were answering. So the, the way it was organized, which was kind of cool, is I'd have two or three people call in and, and ask questions, and we go through those. And then I'd read survey questions and have people vote on them, like take a poll. Right. So I, I'd ask a, a question, give a multiple choice, and say, you know, do you, what is most important to Michigan, uh, the economy, the roads? And then they'd vote on them, and then I could discuss the results of that poll. So were you, that, that was a lot of fun to kind of ingratiate that into the uh, town hall. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, how did were you online? How did people access it? I mean, how was it set up technologically? Kind of like a radio show, you know. Not being in that in that industry, I, I would imagine it was similar. We had uh, call screeners taking the questions, and then um, the, the way it was for me is I was in my office and I was had access to my computer, and it would show uh, about five questions that got through and I would choose which one I wanted to answer at that point. And I would try, I would try to very, you know, I wanted to touch on everything. So if somebody was asking the same question, I I would go to another one. Were you like on a telephone or were you just uh, sitting in front of your, uh, you know, uh, computer screen and seeing the questions and just talking like we are now? Yeah. Yeah. I was on a landline. I got you. Well, I mean, that that's, I think, a great idea. How often do you think you might do these? If you expand them to, let's say, an hour or more, uh, does it take a lot of work to set this up? Uh, or do you think, as time goes on, it's going to be pretty easy to repeat the process? Uh, it takes a little bit of work, not, nothing too extreme. I, I like to, to do in-person town halls and teletown halls. So, you know, I, I'll talk to my staff about that and see what would be the easiest for, for us to organize. But, I mean, it would be great to be able to do both every month. I mean, that, that would be ideal. How did you get I'm, out? I'm a face-to-face kind of guy, too, so I like the face-to-face. But I, I like the idea that more people have accessibility to me with the telephone home. So when these people were on, they could actually see you on a screen while they were talking to you? No, no, just over the telephone. Over the telephone. Yeah. Uh, well, how many other senators have done this that you're aware of? Do you know of any others that are doing this? I know Senator Lucido did one. Okay. Um, I'm, I don't know who, who else specifically, but I do know he did one. Right. Well, okay, tell me a couple of other things you've been interested in. Strategic Air Command or something to that effect in northern Michigan, you were very hopeful about something like that being developed in Michigan. Where have you gone with that? 
Oh, we're 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 rocking on that at the uh, the Michigan Launch Initiative. Uh, there's there's actually quite a few updates on that. We have our uh, second year space symposium coming up in Traverse City on the 9th of September and the 10th, and the keynote speaker will be Breitenstein, who is the head of NASA. So the whole country is focusing now on on Michigan's op- economic opportunity here with launching the low Earth orbit satellites. Uh, the money's been appropriated for that, and uh, here's the kicker to the whole thing. We have the advantage over all the other states in the country, primarily because all the other states in the country are trying to use federal dollars for this, and we're using private, meaning that the licensing process for us is going to move quicker. In fact, the FAA says that we're pretty much the template for how to do this correct. Uh, We also have all the geographical advantages for this, because if you're going to launch the low-Earth orbit satellites, you're going to want to do it where there's enough restricted airspace to do it. Also, it goes back to that north of the 45th parallel, it's simply cheaper to launch them from Michigan. So you, you don't only have companies wanting to throw money into Michigan to launch satellites. You have the entire Midwest kind of uh, forming a pack wanting to launch them in Michigan. Any of other countries that want to come here and launch them in Michigan. So as the auto industry transitions into a tech industry, I see an opportunity to basically take full advantage because if they're going to try to do autonomous vehicles, it won't work without the satellites. And if you're going to launch satellites in Michigan, might as well make them here too. Is that why you think Michigan is the focal point for all this? I mean, there could be anywhere in the United States something like this could be development. Why Michigan? Um, no, actually, that's not correct. The coastal states have had sort of uh, have had this for a long time, but the reality is with the defense industry's involvement, Michigan is in a much better position than they are because we're not vulnerable. Um, also, as far as restricted airspace goes, the other states don't have that. Oklahoma had attempted this and completely failed. Because you can't launch satellites in landlocked areas because the, you can't do it over where there's, there's high populations. Michigan has all the advantages of the coastal states with none of their weaknesses. And we have a manufacturing background that none of those states have because of the auto industry. We, we literally hold all the cards in this. Did you any, get any questions about this subject in your Teletown Hall? Um, I usually tie it just to my jobs. Uh, this, this will provide over the next 20, 30 years trillions of dollars worth of jobs. And, and let's be honest. The issue with the roads is it's a revenue problem, and this would address that moving forward. This would be Henry Ford 2.0. I got you. Listen, we could talk about this forever. Thank you so much, Senator Michael McDonald of the 10th Senate District in Macomb County, for being our guest, giving such a great overview of his Teletown Hall and his plans for a strategic air command in northern Michigan. Thank you, Bill. I, I like to love to be on any time. We'll get you back. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. I am back, and before we get our next guest, uh, I just thought I'd mention uh, a few things about the issue of congressional and legislative redistricting uh, and the Independent Commission approved by Michigan voters last November in Proposal 2 that's going to be doing the map drawing uh, for the elections coming up in 2022, not 2020, but 22, and for the succeeding decade based on the Independent Commission maps. Now, an expert is saying that the longtime standards on redistricting in Michigan – is going to have to be blitzed 
by these map makers approved by Proposal 2. No more what are called APOL standards, A-P-O-L standards. In other words, uh, Michigan may see, beginning in 2022, a return to what was called the Hatcher-Kleiner Congressional and Legislative Redistricting Plans of the 1960s and 70s. Now, why is that? Uh, Well, according to one national apportionment expert, the oddly configured congressional and legislative gerrymanders, quote-unquote, at least alleged gerrymanders, drawn by Republicans in Michigan in 2001 and 2011 that have been ridiculed by Democrats and redistricting reformers will be supplanted by maps that are even more grotesquely shaped and will sow confusion among local governments. That's what the 13-member commission is bound to produce, this expert says, if it follows the plain wording of Proposal 2. Now, this expert is named Rick Pilds, P-I-L-D-E-S, And he is a University of Michigan Law School graduate who once clerked for the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. And Rick Pilds is now a professor at New York University. He has focused on Michigan as one of four states that adopted ballot measures in 2018 to create independent redistricting commissions, quote, or other nonpartisan processes to draw districts. Now, Pills says, and I'm going to quote here from his article, which was online, Michigan's initiative, which applies to both Congress and state districts, is similar to the state of Utah in trying to blend what might be called the process of designing maps and the outcome criteria of the maps that have been produced, but with a different set of priorities. So Michigan's proposal, according to PILDS, first requires compliance with federal law, contiguity, and then respect for communities of interest. But the next requirement in order of priority is that the district shall not provide a disproportionate advantage to any political party using, quote, accepted measures of partisan fairness, unquote. Only after that requirement is met is the commission then required to reflect pre-existing boundaries of towns, cities, and counties to be reasonably compact. Now, Pilds continues, and I'm quoting again, because the commission's plans cannot provide a disproportionate advantage to a party, This requirement goes beyond ensuring that the commission not act with partisan intent. The effects of its plan must still not advantage any party. In addition, since this requirement is given priority over drawing compact districts or keeping towns and the like together, the Michigan initiative might be read to require that districters use bizarrely shaped districts and break up towns, cities, and counties whenever necessary to ensure that the map produces fair partisan outcomes. 
in the sense that a party's proportion of seats corresponds to its proportion of statewide votes, unquote. So I'm saying here, weekend warriors, get ready, because if Proposal 2 withstands some legal challenges that are ongoing right now, it will produce a throwback redistricting map reminding us of the Democratic Hatcher-Kleiner gerrymander of the 1970s. And those plans, the Hatcher-Kleiner plan and its earlier incarnation, the Austin-Kleiner plan, which was in effect between 1964 and 1972, basically were in such a rush to conform to two U.S. Supreme Court decisions in the early 1960s, one called Baker versus Carr and the other Reynolds versus Sims, demanding what is known as one person, one vote uh, for the first time in American history in drawing maps, that they basically cut across township and city and county lines willy-nilly because they wanted to meet the absolute equal one-person, one-vote criteria that the Supreme Court had laid down, particularly in congressional maps. In the congressional maps, there can't be any deviation from one district to another, at least at the time the census comes in every 10 years, whether it's 1990 or 2000, 2010, 2020. There can be a little play in the joints for state house and state senate districts, not much, maybe one, two, three percent at most, but for congressional maps, they've got to be dead even, each one of these districts. And to do that, sometimes you have to cut across these county, city, and uh, township lines. Now, what difference does that make, really? Does anybody care? Well, yes. Uh, It produced these maps, Austin Kleiner and Hatcher Kleiner, back in the 60s and 70s. A lot of consternation and anger from local officials because they would find their city split right down the middle between whether they were represented by Congressman A or Congressman B in a completely different district. There wasn't a kind of a neat traditional boundary around the district uh, that people had relied on for decades uh, to have a succession of elected officials one after the other, but within a carefully defined legal territory that everybody, including citizens and voters, were used to. Instead, these communities were chopped up They were split in two, sometimes divided into three parts, and there was a lot of consternation. So in 1982, the state Supreme Court, after the 1980 census, appointed a special master, and his name was Bernard Apol, A-P-O-L. He was a former state elections director, and the Supreme Court charged him with coming up with maps for Congress in Michigan, for the State House in Michigan, and for the State Senate in Michigan. And he did come up with three maps, three different maps. And what he tried to do was conform not only to one person, one vote, but also to preserve as much 
as possible contiguity and compactness and cutting as few city, township, and county lines as possible. And the Supreme Court, which, by the way, was controlled by Democrats at that time, approved the APOL maps unanimously. Every member of the Supreme Court, Republican, elected, or nominated, or Democrat, approved the APOL standards. And the APOL standards were still in place in 1992 uh, when we went through another reapportionment following the 1990 census. And then they were codified into law in 1996. Well, now, according to Rick Pilds, with the creation of this new independent commission, those APOL standards may be out the window again. And we'll be back to what was the Hatcher-Kleiner map of 1972. We'll see how that works out. I'll be back in a minute with another guest. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned. I've got some bad news. I hope to have Representative Tanisha Yancey, who is a Democrat of Harper Woods in the 1st House District. Uh, she represents uh, not only Harper Woods, but uh, Gross Point Woods and Gross Point Shores. And uh, 65% of her district is in East Detroit. And I was going to get her to talk about uh, air pollution in Southeast Michigan because she and a number of her fellow House Democratic members had a press conference last week uh, in Dearborn before a plant announcing that they were uh, going to introduce legislation to crack down on air pollution in Michigan. But she uh, has had a conflict come up at the last minute and cannot be with us. So I am simply going to talk about a couple of other things Uh, Number one, I will mention that this week, um, and I could have mentioned this at the top of the hour, but uh, we ran out of time. Uh, There was a bill uh, that was reported out of a House committee in the State House of Representatives in Lansing this week, which tries to crack down on what is called the heckler's veto on college campuses. Uh, in other words, uh, violations of what many people feel uh, is free speech, uh, our First Amendment rights, uh, where on college campuses, um, if outside guests are invited to come to the university or college to speak, or maybe there's somebody who's even part of the university community, maybe a faculty member, maybe a student, maybe an administrator, or maybe a number of them. Maybe there's a panel. Uh, They try to hold some event, or they try to speak uh, on some subject, some point on the campus, and they are shouted down by hecklers. Uh, They are bullied. They are forced from the microphone, from the stage. Uh, Violations of free speech. Uh, The idea that we always honored, supposedly, in this country— for a couple of centuries, that our colleges and universities are havens of free thought and free speech. That's what universities and colleges are for, the exchange of ideas and the expression of those ideas. And 
responding to those ideas, debating those ideas. But nowadays, it's gotten to the point I think we have read. In many cases, it's a case of maybe political correctness, where some groups on campus who claim that the speaker is somebody they don't like and is expressing views they find abhorrent, uh, these groups will heckle uh, the speaker or they will make such noise in advance of the speech that the speaker can never even make the remarks to begin with. So there's legislation uh, that has been introduced by Representative O'Reilly in uh, the House of Representatives that would crack down on the heckler's veto. And uh, it also would uh, ban uh, speech zones being set up in universities by university administrators. Uh, He claims in his legislation that there shouldn't be specific places alone where you can talk. You should be able to do it otherwise on the campus. And it was reported out of committee. Now, we've got one problem uh, in Michigan trying to deal with anything like this, and that is we have written into our Constitution some of the strongest language in any state constitution in the entire United States, giving universities autonomy to run themselves. In other words, uh, the legislature and state government really has the power only to provide financial assistance through appropriations, through public tax dollars, uh, or maybe withdraw that uh, money or not give as much of that money to the university or college as they might otherwise. But the state and the legislature do not have the power to intrude in how a university polices itself or administers itself or runs itself. And so every time a legislator or a legislative body, or for that matter, could be maybe the governor, tries to do something to crack down on behavior on university campuses, there is pushback of a major sort from the university community saying, you can't do this. You have no right to do this. You, it's not legal for you to do this. Just give us the money. And uh, we'll run our own show. Well, you can see how that has produced some controversy over time. So we'll see where this particular legislation goes. The effort to crack down on what is known as the heckler's veto on university and college campuses. Now, lastly, let me just mention uh, the subject of dark money. What is dark money? Uh, does it apply to only one side of the political equation? Well, let me start out by uh, positing that there is little question that the epithet, that means insult in a sense, dark money is a pejorative, meaning an insult, something negative said about somebody or something. Dark money is a pejorative to describe hidden financial support, usually in large quantities, for political causes and or candidates. Uh, Usually, you read about this in the mainstream news media, and you certainly hear about this from Democratic candidates and organizations, that this is something that conservatives and business groups and right-wing groups 
participate in, dark money. In other words, conservatives and right-wing causes and organizations like to fuel their message through spokespersons and TV advertising through dark money, where you don't know, the public does not know, the news media does not know who actually is giving this money to these right-wing causes. They're not identified. All you know is here is an ad. It's taking a very conservative position on an issue, but you don't know who's paying for this ad. But let me just ask this. Could dark money be funding Democratic and liberal causes, as well as Republicans and conservatives? For instance, the Michigan Campaign Finance Network and Common Cause of Michigan, when it was a strong organization, it isn't anymore. And the League of Women Voters of Michigan, which is still very much in evidence, have for many years been heavily subsidized by the Chicago-based Joyce Foundation, J-O-Y-C-E. That's the foundation on whose board of directors Barack Obama once served, pre-presidency, back in his community organizing days. Each of these organizations has developed a niche as part of its Joyce-funded political reform collaborative. So what about the influence of dark money behind voters, not politicians? The acronym for that is VNP. In the VNP 2018 campaign to amend the Michigan Constitution to, quote, reform, unquote, congressional and legislative redistricting. Well, the VNP campaign, believe it or not, raised $16 million in direct contributions and another $4 million in in-kind contributions. Only seven contributors accounted for over $13 million of that total. In fact, just two contributors accounted for more than $11 million. Now, VNP's top three contributors were an organization innocuously named the 1630 Fund. Now, the 1630 Fund contributed $6 million all by itself to VNP, And what it is is a Washington, D.C.-based 501c4 that in its IRS annual form uh, disclosed that it basically is bankrolled by liberal groups from a network of large individual donors and like-minded nonprofits. Now, another organization that contributed to VNP was the Cadrivium Foundation, which has five focus areas. Democracy, Technology and Society, Scientific Understanding, Climate Change, and Ocean Health. Quadrivium states on its website that its foundation is for progress on every issue. The third group is Action Now Initiative. These three groups contributed over $13 million to the VNP cause. And I would just say this. Are these contributors simply looking for nonpartisan or bipartisan good government, or will they be sorely, sorely disappointed if Proposal 2 doesn't deliver what they expect? A reincarnation of the 1972 Hatcher-Kleiner Democratic gerrymander of Michigan's congressional and legislative district. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with another show on a number of topics. Thank you for listening.